Welcome to this edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me is Joe Healy. It is March 19. That means it is a week after the NCAA canceled the College World Series and all other winter and spring sports championships. The news of the last week has uh, has still been going pretty quickly, so we're going to try and catch you up on all the latest. But before we get into that, Joe, we... Uh, we're on, I don't know, quarantine sounds harsh. I don't know. The office is closed. We, we've we, we've gone home. Uh, we're, we're, we're working from home. How are you adjusting to our new world reality in the time of uh, this novel coronavirus? Well, I've got a little experience working from home. The previous job, I, I, I worked remotely for about a year and a half. Uh, so, you know, I was a little bit I'd say I was fairly well prepared for this. Had some experience under my belt. I had some reps, as the coaches might say. Um, so I was kind of, I was prepared for it, but it is, it is quite, quite the adjustment. Um, you know, you, the hardest thing is, uh, and I've seen a lot of people tweeting about the, you know, tips for working at home and, and all that jazz. And I think sometimes some of that stuff gets a little overblown, but, but I will say one of the hardest things is kind of reestablishing, reestablishing, um, a routine. Uh, you know, we as humans love our routines and I probably more than most, frankly, um, so that has been a little bit of an adjustment for me, kind of figuring out what my what my routine is uh, working from home. And but given that we're going to be doing this for a while, it sure looks like um, I have plenty of time to, to get that figured out. And uh, office is closed. However, I went in there yesterday. Um, I did not steal the toilet paper out of the bathroom. I was not that desperate. Um, so I, I passed on that. I, I got the alarm turned off, which was a great uh, amount of stress for me, you know, getting that, it was my first time trying to get in there and turn that alarm off. And boy, is that thing loud when you get close to it and you try to turn it off? Um, cause I hesitated, I got in the door and I hesitated for a second cause I was reading the, you know, we have like instructions on the wall as to how to get it turned off. And so I get in the door and I'm reading the instructions and I'm trying to make sure I, I understand it before I go over to the keypad. And so like it started beeping more rapidly and loud and I think louder, but I was also just walking closer to it. But by the time I got to it, like it was like piercing my ears. So, um, but got that done, got, so I had to, had to go grab something from the office. So I, I got in and, and got out. Of course I was the, the only one there, but, uh, but no, so it's, yeah, been a, been a weird, weird week, uh, but we're going to have some time to get this figured out. And, and what hasn't changed and I, in all seriousness, I, I tweeted this earlier in the week, what hasn't changed is that, um, it, it might seem like there's not a whole lot going on for us and certainly not having games is a real bummer. Um, but there, there's really, um, perhaps more conversation going on internally at BA, you know, about stuff we're working on and stuff we're writing and, and we're all, we're all really committed to, to making it through this and, and giving you our readers and our listeners new stuff to, to chew on. Um, so we're, we're still out here working pretty hard and that way it hasn't felt much different because we've all had stuff to write for at least the last week. So, um, and that will continue. So that has not changed at all. What has changed is just, uh, you know, um, sitting on a couch or a dining room table or an easy chair, uh, as opposed to at my desk. Yeah, that's, uh, that is definitely true. We are going to continue cranking through stuff at Baseball America. And we hope that you guys continue to stay engaged with it and, uh, you know, keep checking it out. Obviously no games means different things, but we're, we're uh, we're trying to cook up some things. This week has been mostly just trying to stay on top of the news, which I guess we're going to get to here in this form, uh, or in this uh, this media medium. There it is, medium. Uh, I, I can 
I know the words. <laughs> Where, yeah, you uh, nailed it. You got it. <laughs> that was that was perfect. You know, I haven't lost my touch at all uh, here on in, in one week into no baseball season. Spring training for everyone still, I think maybe. Anyway, so when we stop, when we press stop on the last podcast, I don't believe that the Division One uh, Council's Conference Committee. Um, that's not exactly what it's called, but the Division One committee had not announced that they were recommending eligibility relief for student athletes in spring sports. That happened uh, on Friday. And even if we did mention that in, in the last podcast, a lot of people still I see on Twitter are unaware of this. Understandably, a lot has happened. Uh, but that is that is the recommendation from one of the top level NCAA committees, and they then kind of kicked it to the rest of the NCAA's committees to work through the details of how that would be arranged. They, the, the initial recommendation is for every student athlete. Uh, we'll see if that comes through and that it's not just the seniors. My guess is that they'll figure out a way to make that work because as many coaches have pointed out, um, you know, they have kids that maybe played for the first time on Tuesday night. They have kids with one at bat or three at bats or one inning pitched or you know six innings pitched even. You know, it, it's not it's not a lot. And why would those kids be treated differently just because they happen to be freshmen or sophomores or, or even juniors? And you know, the larger uh, point also is that the everyone would have fallen within the guidelines for a medical redshirt where you can't have played more than it's either 20 or 25 percent of the season i think it might be 25 percent for a medical redshirt and no one no one's played that much so everyone theoretically should be eligible for that so why not just give them all an extra year of eligibility obviously in baseball there are a lot of issues to work through that are very complicated beyond just the idea of giving out eligibility there is the 35-man roster cap. The 27, uh, the, the limit on, uh, on scholarship players is 27 and 11.7 scholarships. And every player that's on scholarship has to receive at least 25% of the scholarship. So those are all the numbers that you're working with. And if you're now adding a whole new class of kids into the program and keeping more uh, on the other end, you now have to find a way to make all of that work. And that is going to be the, the job of various NCAA committees going forward to, to figure out how all of those numbers work in this new reality. Um, to say we have any idea of how that's going to work uh, would be wrong. Uh, no one has any idea right now. And, and anyone that, that's out there saying that they know, like, I really think it's just speaking uh, totally speculatively because they're the from my understanding the, the baseball committee has not met um and i would like to think they would be pretty heavily involved but um you know we'll we'll see where all of that goes you know yesterday uh what is that that's wednesday uh stc commissioner greg sankey said he supported the measure said that he wanted it for every spring sport athlete 
and that he hoped that it would be done soon because they recognize how important it is that student athletes understand uh, just where they stand eligibility wise. So there's a lot to work through with all of that, but we'll we'll definitely stay on top of that as the situation continues to unfold. Um, you know, honestly, I don't even know if the people in Indianapolis know much about where, where this is going to go. They, they've had a lot on their plates, and, and this is certainly one of, I would think, the top-level items, uh, but they've also only, you know, had this reality for, for a few days here. So we'll we'll see where that goes. I, Joe, I mean, it, it's a very complicated issue. I, no one seems to have much of a handle on how they recommend things proceed. But, you know, what, what are you looking for as, as we continue to, to track that particular storyline? Yeah, I think it's, so for one, I think it's, it's a good time uh, because to your point, uh, nothing has been decided and, and very little has even been officially discussed. Um, so I do think one thing that's kind of gotten a little bit on my, uh, on my nerves, and it's, I guess it's easy to get irritated by things you're sitting at home and you're just, you know, you're, you're on social media, Twitter primarily, and you're, you know, seeing the, so, so things get when you're when you're stuck inside and you're not be able to kind of do your the normal routines like you, you tend to maybe get a little bit more irritated by things than you would otherwise. And one of the things that's gotten stuck in my craw a little bit is just this idea that, you know, until something is, um, you know, is the the straw man that by even discussing some out of the box proposals or discussing these the issues that are going to come up or have to be addressed at some point, we are somehow um, missing the most important thing, which is that we need to like keep healthy and like think about the humans here and the humans involved and the, um, you know, as as if we don't all want that. Um, So that is stuck in my craw a little bit. Like, no, like let's, (laughs) the most important thing, yes, is that we're we're safe about this and, and no one is suggesting we should run out there next week and no one is seriously suggesting anyway that we should run out there next week and, and start the season back up and, and get it going again. Um, I think everyone at this point understands the, the, the gravity of the issue, but that doesn't mean we can't, you know, take a stab at talking about what all this stuff means. And it doesn't mean we have answers or pretend to have answers or uh, try to say that this is the one way it needs to be, to be done. Um, so two th- you know, we say this a lot of this podcast, two things can be true. One is knowing that, Ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, this stuff, not that important, um, but important enough that, you know, we're going to have to address this at some point. Like, let's start talking through this stuff. So those two things can be true. And sometimes I think people um, are a little over aggressive in my mind about saying saying that, that, that we, we shouldn't even be talking about this yet. This isn't important. And I, I don't know, like, you know, we're all at home. Like, let's talk about it. Coaches are uh, facing this this uh, this mess. They're going to have to untangle mess of no one's doing. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk about it a little bit. I think ultimately, again, you're right. Um, no one knows, uh, it's not really being officially discussed yet. However, you know, you and I have had some conversations about it and and as much as I love some of the the outside the box thinking about like, Hey, let's play this thing in the fall. Um, you know, some of the proposals involve moving the draft to the end of the fall. Um, you know, some of that stuff is going to be a hard sell, but I, I like where their head is at. You know, I think ultimately it's going to just be kind of a blanket situation where the, I think it's going to be the simplest solution. And sometimes the simplest solution is the best one. But but I do think I'm looking for it to be something that's simple and easy to, um, relatively so anyway, easy to digest. Um, now, what will not be easy is sorting out the roster situation. That's going to have to be done, um, you know, as, as coaches 
come out of the draft, see what they have left after the draft, and then figure it out from there. But but my my best guess is that they're going to end up with some sort of situation where it's just basically we're going to reset everything. It's the same roster it was last year, plus your incoming players. Um, and then the money is going to have to come from some somewhere else to, to kind of keep those guys who are coming back on this kind of the same money they were on uh, earlier this season. So um, that's that's all just to say um, that we'll have to see. I mean, they could surprise us. We, we, we really at this point don't know. And, and again, to my point earlier, I think I think this is a time to kind of um, think outside the box and talk through this. And even if these some of these proposals don't really ever seriously get discussed. Like let's move the conversation in a direction of what would be best um, for the players first and foremost, uh, but also for these coaches and these, in these programs. And um, because there are implications for the universities as well, when it comes to things like money and logistics. So a lot to sort through for sure. I mean, the thing is that for anyone saying that this isn't an important issue and it shouldn't be discussed right now, I mean, they're wrong because while it might not be that important for the universities and frankly i you know the coaches have other things to worry they'll get through this but there are kids that like their lives actually like are dependent on this because if the seniors somehow didn't get eligibility relief uh well they have to go on and move on with their lives now and they have to you know they're going to presumably you know a lot of them will be graduating and then they have to go out and, and figure out how, what they're doing next. So they need to know whether they're going to be allowed to come back next year or not. And the other thing about all of this is that it is March already. And while we spend a lot of time focused on players that are going to go play pro ball, like we that that's that's a lot of where our focus is, uh, you know, dra- legitimate draft prospects. There are a lot of that, you know, that that is the, the vast minority of college baseball. The vast majority of college baseball is not going to get that opportunity. And, you know, so those kids are going out and, you know, looking to go to grad school or looking to get a job. And, and the fact that it's March means that kids are already, you know, making plans for next fall that, you know, that whether they're going to grad school, whether they're accepting a job offer, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the case might be, it's March. Like their season was supposed to end in like two months. They, they would have been graduated in a lot of cases by that time. So they need to know what they're, what they're supposed to be doing and they need to know as soon as possible, you know, does the freshman need to know as quickly? No, not necessarily, but you know, for for everyone that that is that is a senior, you know, that's a legitimate concern, and that's also um, an important note that you know when when we hear like senior relief or, or eligibility relief, and that all the seniors could come back, a lot of them will not. Um, you know, that's important to remember as well that it, it you know you might be imagining that they all come back, but they won't because again it's March, they have plans, many of them for next year. And even if they don't have plans, if they've already graduated, you know, now they're looking at, uh, do I want to take out more loans to come back and play baseball for a year uh, while I work on a graduate degree that I may not be sure that I want? 
uh, they have to, you know, or even if they're like, say they're only a semester away from graduation, well, do I want to take out a full year's worth of loans to play baseball again? Or do I want to, you know, just finish it out, you know, lock it down in the fall and, and go on and, and, and move on to the next stage of my life? So, you know, I've talked to coaches that really aren't expecting much in the way of their senior class to come back. And that's at every level of the game, whether we're talking about mid-major or, or major conference. I'll admit I haven't talked to low-major low coaches about this particularly, but uh, my guess is that they're actually not going to see much in the way of, of players coming back either because they're, those players are, are the least likely to be looked at for draft purposes. So, you know, they, they can't even look at it and say, well, you know, maybe I, maybe I give it another go and then maybe I have a nice senior year and then I get a chance to play in the minor leagues. Like a lot of them that, just, that understand that that's not going to be true. So, you know, if your if your team has five seniors on it, I, you know, maybe, maybe 20%, you know, maybe one of them's coming back. Um, maybe in some cases you'd get half your seniors back, but I, I don't think it, you, anyone around the country is going to be looking at getting, uh, a whole mess of, of seniors back. Uh, you know, maybe there's, there are a couple, um, you know, extreme cases, obviously, you know, I wouldn't have expected 2019 Vanderbilt to be playing with six seniors on it. So maybe in some cases, uh, you know, we're, we're going to find teams like that, but the majority of teams are not going to suddenly see a wealth of seniors on their roster, uh, in 2021, regardless of, of what the NCAA does here. Yeah, I think I think what we're going to end up seeing is very different, um, seeing it play out in very different ways across the country. Like, I, I do think there probably will be a team or two where you look at the roster whenever we do start playing and you go, wait a minute, they got all of those guys back? And I think there's going to be some where you're like, well, this was really like a normal offseason for this team. They lost you know, just about everybody we would have expected them to lose, whether that was seniors or guys getting drafted. So I think it is going to really run the gamut. Um, I think that'll make college baseball more interesting, at least for that fact. Um, but, but um, yeah, I, I would expect it to not be, I think your points are, I think you're correct. I think um, there are going to be a lot of guys who are fourth and fifth year guys who go for one reason or another, eh, you know, I think it's just kind of time for me to move on. I put myself in, in those shoes when I was, um, you know, I took a fifth year to graduate and, um, now that was just because I was, you know, had nothing to do with athletics or anything like that. It was just that I was, um, uh, I went through a period of time when I was not the most motivated student. We'll put it that way. Uh, got my stuff together in time though. Um, but I took five years and I got to a point, obviously that I wasn't in a hurry to get out because I knew I had squandered some time. Um, but by that time I was kind of ready to be moved on to the next phase of my life. Now, if I was playing college baseball and I knew that was my last chance to play competitive baseball, I, I probably very well might have felt differently and may have been more motivated to come back. But I can tell you, you know, 23 year old Joe after his fifth year in college was kind of like, okay, let's, let's do something a little bit different here. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I suspect a lot of those guys feel the same way. Um, as much as they are going to miss the game and as much as they um, love it and love being a part of that, uh, I think there are a lot of guys who are just going to go not for, you know, not to play pro baseball and not to just go into coaching, but just to kind of move on to whatever's next. So I, th I think there is going to be a lot of that. I think you're right. And, but, uh, but again, I think we're going to see all kinds of different 
permutations of this. I think there there will be teams that lose just about everybody we expected, and I think there are teams that are going to come back with, you know, uh, far more players uh, than than most other teams. I think it's going to be from from one extreme to the other. Now we keep talking about the draft, and I, I guess I want to address that quickly here. In um, there's been a lot of talk of pushing the draft back. And our Carlos Colazzo reported earlier this week that if it is more likely that they would hold the draft on the same date for a, a whole litany of reasons, uh, some of which I think uh, scouting directors are being overly optimistic on the idea that like they would fall behind on their 2021 scouting if they were to push it back. Well, I mean, like that, that, that implies that there are going to be summer events, which, you know, we'll see. Uh, but they, that it would just be logistically easier in a lot of cases just to hold the draft on its scheduled time approximately and, and, and then move on. Um, we've seen some ideas that it could be shortened. And on Wednesday night, the AP reported that, the, uh, that there is the possibility that they would cancel not only the draft, but also the July 2nd signing period. Um, J.J. Cooper then followed that reporting with his own, and um, the the gist seems to be that everything is just on the table right now. That maybe that means no draft, maybe that means they would hold the draft, maybe that means a reduced draft, whatever. Uh, but that that it's not that they're looking at canceling the draft right now. It's more that they understand that at this moment in time, everything needs to be on the table for them. Most people around the game, it seems like, assume that there would be a draft. And, you know, we're going to continue operating on that assumption. If there isn't a draft, obviously that changes a lot of things for a lot of people. Uh, You know, I've seen some talk about how MLB would need to coordinate with the NCAA if there wasn't a draft. I don't think that's true at all. Like, the draft is theirs. The draft rules are their own. It's not the NCAA that tells them they can't draft freshmen and sophomores. That's MLB's rule. Uh, so I don't really know. You know, the, the NCAA I, I would think would have very little to say, and you know has generally tried to not be a part of any part of professional sports. That you know that they, they, they are with like they only recently got on board with the idea of the draft being in Omaha, uh, something that MLB had wanted for several years now. Uh, and had only just a couple years before that been able to get MLB to stop drafting uh, during, you know, the the super regional play. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know what the NCAA would have to say about any of that. They have a lot of problems of their own to deal with as we address. So we'll wait and see what MLB does with the draft, whether it's the full length, whether it's shorter, whatever it is. Uh, I would understand it being shorter, I would understand them canceling it, frankly. Uh, I don't know that that's the likely scenario, but but I would understand all of that if, if it came to pass. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to note is that uh, as Joe, uh, you know, right before we hopped on the podcast, Joe updated the, the the spreadsheet where we've been tracking all the suspensions and cancellations for the last time. Uh, because the last conferences have, have canceled the, the final holdout. I guess it was the Big South. We had thought the MEAC was kind of holding out, uh, but it turned out that we were kind of misinterpreting their initial press release, which uh, yeah. said that they were suspended through the end of the season. 
uh, which we kind of just focused on the suspension and not the end of the season part of that. So, Joe, you've, you're confident in saying everything is now done. Yeah, I mean, that was just, I hadn't read that whole, I mean, that's kind of on me, I guess. I just hadn't read that whole thing, but we were just, yeah, we were focusing on the suspension part of it. But yeah, the Big South was the last holdout, and it's kind of funny that there were, um, and, I, and I don't mean this in a, uh, this is not to antagonize them, uh, because I understand wanting to be optimistic and positive about it, but there were some conferences that they were making noise about trying to play again. I mean, there were some, some uh, sitting head coaches that were very vocal on Twitter about like, being thankful that their leagues suspended as opposed to canceled and let's give this a shot. And it's how it's funny how quickly things have moved that, you know, I think a refrain you heard a lot when these first started coming through, you know, a week ago was why don't we take a couple weeks and see where we're at. And it's funny how we're now, they said, give us a couple weeks and see where we're at. We're now a week after that. And I, you, you very, I think you're, very rarely hearing people seriously suggest that anymore. <laughs> like, let's see where we're at in a week. Um, that's just kind of how fast things have, have moved here. But, um, you know, the, 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 the calls to come back and play have just disappeared very quickly as it's become more and more clear how, um, how aggressive we're going to need to be to, um, to get this, get this curtailed. Um, and, and I, and I don't say this to be alarmist. It's just reading, reading what's, what's been put out there by, uh, voices in the in the in the medical profession and um, that work in this world and you know if we want to protect things like for certainly summer ball um, and even fall practice I mean their college football is kind of right now um, trying to do what they can to see how it's going to affect their seasons and we're not talking until September on that one so um, if you want to protect those things, um, this needed to be done and be aggressive about like, nope, we're just not going to play. We're going to shut it down. Um, so a return to normalcy with, with any expediency required something along the lines of what we're doing here. And that became, uh, very clear within the last, certainly within the last week. Um, but, but really the, the first half of that by the end of the weekend, this is where we knew this is where this was heading. Yeah. And, and you know, the on that Sankey teleconference, the, the SEC commissioner's teleconference yesterday, um, you know, I, he talked about just how um, you know he initially had been one of those people that you know he went on Feinbaum and said, why are we canceling uh, events in June, in March? Like, wh- what was the process for that? And you know, he he said what would seem like difficult decisions a week ago now seem like the most obvious decisions you could make. Uh, so a lot of people have done full 180s on that, and uh, w- with that comes you know, we can we can put a bow on the the 2020 college baseball season far earlier than we were expecting to. Uh, but that leaves us with uh, with many unanswered questions from the, the 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 season. And I over on on the the website, uh, it'll be going up on on Friday. The, the questions, I, I, I tried to run through nine of those questions and, and answer them to, to the best of my ability. Joe and I are going to run through a, a few of them here. We're not going to get to all nine, but um, let, let's start from the top here, Joe. Florida was number one. They were the last undefeated team in the country. They lost on Tuesday night, uh, a little more than a week ago, to, to Florida State uh, to, to fall to 16 and one, but they were the number one team in the country heading into the fifth weekend of, of play. Were they on track to, to be national champions? Could they have been considered the, the 
outright fa- the clear-cut favorites to be the 2020 national champions, winning their second College World Series in four years. I mean, sure, we could say whatever right now, right? Because we're never, <laughs> never going to be proven one way or the other. Um, I, they were certainly in that in that discussion. I mean, that's um, I would probably lean towards not just for the sake of being a little bit different about it, but um, you know, at the risk of being a little prisoner of the moment and prisoner of the last thing we're ever going to see, I really like what I saw from UCLA, and I saw them in whoa, person. Whoa. And Miami, Ohio won at the final game. That's true. Let's let's give You're proper right. respect to the Red Hawks. That's true. They're the national champions until we start up again. Miami, you heard it here first. Congratulations, Danny Hayden, on your first national title. <laughs> um, you know, I really like what I saw Back. from UCLA. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, yeah, so I, I I like what I saw from UCLA. I mean, we talked about, we don't need to dive back into it, but we talked about them a lot the last couple of, of episodes. Um, I certainly liked what they brought to the table just from the standpoint of an offense that could beat you in a lot of different ways. Um, a couple of starting pitchers that were really throwing well. And, of course, that bullpen, which is good as just about any in the country. Um, Georgia is probably on my short list, too, just because now they didn't look – they didn't look all that dominant for stretches of the of what ended up being the entire season um, and, and finished with four losses. Um, but, you know, there were signs their offense was improved. Um, and then, of course, their starting pitching, particularly with um, Emerson Hancock and Cole Wilcox, was, was always going to be outstanding. So, you know, if you were telling me they were going to be a little bit better offensively and they were tracking that way, um, certainly they would have been a team I would have looked at. So, I'll, you know, I'll go UCLA. Um, as the team that, you know, it's funny, didn't, um, didn't Mike Rooney, didn't, didn't he pick UCLA on our preseason podcast? So we never nailed Mike Rooney down. Mike Rooney said he had a dream and that it was either Arizona state or UCLA winning the national championship, but that his dream was not clear enough for him to tell which one it was. But no, I, he, he did, he was all over UCLA, uh, not taking a step back. Uh, maybe he did finally, you know, I, I talked to runes too much. I, conversations blend. Maybe he finally did pick UCLA, but the, um, you know, the, the, we ranked them 10th coming into the season. And I, you know, I didn't think that that was, you know, being overly aggressive, but I think if you look at some other rankings around the country, it might've been. And, you know, they wound up being way better than the, the, there was no step back in, in the podcast that we recorded uh, now a week ago that we'll never see the light of day. We spent some time talking about how UCLA should be afforded the same kind of um, view that we have, I guess, of, you know, a team like Louisville where, OK, you lose a bunch of players, but we just expect you to reload, even if we're a little unfamiliar with who some of the players are because they haven't played a ton. We just at this point trust that Dan McDonald has, you know, the the talent on hand to to never really take much of a step back, and that the way UCLA recruits, that they recruit better than anyone else in the Pac-12, and you know that that they're consistently recruiting top five, top ten classes, and, and more recently it's been a lot of top fives, top sixes. Um, if they're going to keep doing that, and if they're going to keep doing things like they did this year where, you know, you had guys like Mikey Perez and JT Schwartz who, you know, didn't play last year a whole lot or and Matt McClain can take a step forward like we were seeing, then, you know, we we need to stop being worried when UCLA loses a whole bunch of players. The the infrastructure in Westwood is now such that they don't we, we don't have to worry about that, that they're just they're ready to go. 
Yeah, I mean, they've really kind of been, yeah, I forgot that some of that conversation about UCLA had actually been in that podcast that, that never, never ended up getting published. So I, yeah, so I mean, I guess there was some space to, to kind of flesh that out a little bit. I, I, the other thing is they, they have really kind of um, been immune uh, to a large degree from some of the, the ups and downs the West Coast has. Um, now they've had years, you know, between now and the last couple of years and, you know, their run of of getting to Omaha where they went three and four years or three and five or something like that. And, uh, not, not too distant past. They, they did have a couple of years. I think one year they, you know, were one of the last teams into the field, something like that. I mean, so they, that's not to say they haven't had their, you know, uh, mild ups and downs here, but they are kind of largely immune from what we see a lot of times in the West coast. There's been so much discussion the last several years about, you know, why is the West coast down and, and what's going on here. And you see it with programs like, like Cal State Fullerton, for example, um, in the short term or in the long term, USC um, or Stanford. You know, that Stanford was tracking to have a really tough year unless they turn things around uh, very quickly. And that's a team that has hosted three straight regionals coming into the season. So uh, UCLA has kind of been the team that has, because of that recruiting and because the way they develop players, they've been the team, even though they have some of those challenges that we talk about with the West Coast, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the Pac-12 and Pac-12 network issues that kind of keep them from being as visible and, and that the, the, the monetary payouts from the network are not what they are in the other, some of the other leagues. And the facilities are um, good, but not a palace like you see in the SEC and ACC. I mean, that's an issue at UCLA as well. Um, and yet uh, they operate just on a different level than, than a lot of those other teams in the West Coast that have had those ups and downs over the last uh, decade or so. Yeah, I so I, I think UCLA is a totally fair uh, team to to put up here. Georgia, of course, had risen to number three uh, just before the the shutdown, and, and Texas Tech was number two. They did lose two midweek games to Mississippi State. I don't super duper know what to make of those. Frankly, I my I was preoccupied, uh, so I don't super know how those games were lost. For, for the Red Raiders, but they they were trending in a, a you know overall they, they were they were living up to expectation I would say but you know I I'm gonna sit here and, and say that you know Florida at, at this point merited being considered the favorite I was going to be very very interested in, in that Georgia series uh, on opening weekend of SEC play that's why I was in Florida but you know as it stands. Florida ranked in the top 20, both in fielding percentage and ERA when Kevin O'Sullivan's teams are at their best. You know, his he's built around pitching and defense throughout his career with the Gators. Uh, you know, and so they were operating at a very high level there and their offense was scoring more than seven runs a game. They, you know, it, it wasn't the insane schedule that they'd played, but it wasn't a bunch of pushovers either. Let's not forget that they swept Miami on the road. Um, you know, so I, I, I feel like signs were pointing in the direction of, of them being the best team in the country. Leftwich and Mace at the front of the rotation. Those two guys match up pretty well with anyone. Hunter Barco was looking like he was developing really well as a freshman Sunday starter. And, you know, it, it, we, we talked about some guys taking a step forward out at UCLA. Well, like Judd Fabian had taken a step forward at the top of the, the Gators lineup and Jacob Young was playing, playing very well. And, 
um, you know, they, they were figuring some things out offensively. It wasn't going to be the deepest lineup in the country by any means, but it, you know, the pitching staff was incredible. Uh, the defense was playing at a really high level, and I do think the offense was was clicking at, at a level that we hadn't seen from Florida, uh, at least last year. So, you know, I, I I'm inclined to say that the Gators were the favorites at this point, but I, I you know, it, we played four weeks. It, it's hard to draw uh, too significant a conclusion from that. Uh, so let's move on to jumping to conclusions in a different way, and that is the player of the year race. And Joe, from the start, the 2020 player of the year race looked like it was going to be pretty wide open. You know, there was there was no one player coming into this year that I think you could say, like, yeah, clear-cut favorite. You had Spencer Torkelson, you had Austin Martin, you had Nick Gonzalez, you had Hancock, and you had Lacey. Uh, Those are probably the favorites coming into the year. And Hancock was off to a up-and-down start to the season. I think he probably was going to write it and end up with really, really good numbers. But, um, you know, the rest of those guys started very well. You know, obviously, Nick Gonzalez made a lot of headlines. Uh, he's hitting 448. He had 12 home runs in 16 games. Uh, the competition was uh, bad. Let's let's just admit that. 12 of those 16 games were home games against three of the worst teams in Division One baseball. Uh, but, you know, he did all he could do during those games, really. Spencer Torkelson was being treated like Barry Bonds. He'd walked 31 times in 17 games. Uh, and despite that he still had six home runs i think he had like 17 hits on the season or something was all just because he was getting walked so much uh was 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 dominant 46 strikeouts eight walks and 24 innings austin martin was off to a, a pretty strong start 377 507 663 home runs and you know that's not even to mention guys like tyler keenan and bryce jarvis and reed detmers that uh, were, we're all off to really strong starts of their own, but you know maybe had started the season a cut or two below that that lead group, uh, or you know even Tyler Keenan was kind of off the board in terms of uh, Player of the Year favorites. Uh, you know Detmers was was probably just a cut below, and Bryce Jarvis somewhere a little below that. But you know it, it's entirely too early to have gotten a read on it, especially considering the way those guys all started. But what where? I mean, I personally was just excited to see this race play out, and you know, I, I don't know where you were at on, on that, Joe. If you, if you had, were kind of zeroing in on anyone, or if you were more like me and just you know excited to to see where where that thing was going to take us this year. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm certainly more the latter, just because you know we didn't really get most conferences were not into the teeth of conference play yet, or in conference play at all, I should say. Uh, so we just really didn't get a read on a lot of these guys. Um, a lot of a lot of home games for the top programs. Um, you know, a lot of um, mediocre or worse competition for a lot of the players in these top programs. Um, so we we just never really got a good a good gauge on a lot of this stuff. That said, uh, if you're making me pick now, I just I think Nick Gonzalez's numbers were going to be so good this year that it was going to be hard to deny it, even if you put it through the filter of you know, playing in a, in a, a mid or low major conference, depending on how you want to classify the WAC. Um, what against, if I told you that last year in WAC play, Nick Gonzalez only hit, wait, I have it here. 
four home runs in 27 games, and he had 12 home runs in 28 non-conference games a year ago. Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly. I, I mean, like, that would be... so, and like, I don't mean that to say that like whack pitching is suddenly so much harder for him. Uh, I mean, certainly it's a it's a step up from playing Iona, Texas Southern, and uh, Purdue Fort Wayne. But I think the bigger thing was that guys were going to stop pitching to Nick Gonzalez. That when you're playing games like that and you're Purdue, Fort Wayne, Iona, and, and Texas Southern, you have no chance at a at-large bid. You know that. So the, those games basically don't matter. You just pitch to Nick Gonzalez. Who cares? Uh, you know, get the work. Let the kid, you know, let your pitcher see if he can get them out. Get him out. Uh, spoiler alert. They couldn't. But... You know that wasn't going to happen in whack play, where those whack games matter a lot more. So whether or not he was going to keep the keep up, you know, the insanity of of how locked in he was, uh, he was about to stop getting pitched to, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean that very well may be. Uh, certainly, that's one of the ways in which um, we will we will not uh, not get to we'll never get to find that out. Um, but I mean, of course, going for him is the fact that he's always going to get to play his home games in that that environment uh which certainly would have would have helped and i mean i so the flip side while we're on the conversation i mean i, I hate to skip ahead and kind of what we had on our doc here but you had talked about you know can spencer torkelson break the walks record um you know and since we're kind of on that subject i figured we, we transition that real quick because i think i think the answer there is and what what is the record by the way do you have so that? the walks record for everyone is 112 it was okay. set by um Texas's Kobe Curlin in 1985. Um, he played in, I, didn't, I don't have it right in front of me, but he played in something like 75 or 76 games. Yeah. Yeah. Torkelson had walked 31 times in 17 games. That's a rate of 1.82. That rate means that he would have needed to play, if he could have kept that rate up, he would have needed to play 62 games to break the record. And that rate also would have been a record of its own. Um, so that's a lot to ask him to keep walking 1.82 times per game. But at the same time, maybe it wasn't because he'd already been walked 15 times intentionally in 17 games. And if I'm going to say that Nick Gonzalez was going to get pitched to less, I probably also have to acknowledge that Spencer Torkelson was going to get pitched to less because while they played some teams that were aiming at at-large berths, they also played some teams that weren't. And so I, I don't know precisely where all the intentional walks happened. I, I I didn't bother to map it out on that granular level. But if, um, again, if Nick Gonzalez was going to get pitched to less, Spencer Torkelson was also probably going to get pitched to a little bit less once Pac-12 play started. Yeah, maybe so. The counter-argument to that, though, is that the Pac-12 being a conference that doesn't have a conference tournament, and we were talking about how the Pac-12 might be a three-bid league, um, there are teams at the bottom of the standings and look, I'm not saying that coaches want to tank games. Like every coach and player wants to win every game they're involved in. But if you're a team that is clearly out of at large bid consideration in a league that doesn't have a conference tournament, um, to your point about, you know, before where it's like, Hey, we've got this, this freshman pitcher who we think is going to be pretty good and he's got good stuff. Like let's let him throw to Torkelson. And because, you know, if it doesn't go well, eh, it's Spencer Torkelson. If it goes great, then you've got something to maybe build on. So I think there would have been a lot of like micro teaching moments there with Torkelson at the plate against teams that were out of, you know, out of that large range. So I think Pac-12 being the way it is might have curtailed his walk rate a little bit. The other thing too, the Pac-12 tournament, not not having a tournament hurts Torkelson there because those are extra games he would have had. 
Um, you know, he's limited to 56 without a conference tournament, whereas other conferences you get 56 plus, you know, at least two, three, four, five games. Um, so we'd really be asking Arizona State to, I mean, almost basically get to Omaha to get to that. No, it was uh, he just needed to play in a regional final. And really? OK. Yeah, I guess that I guess that's true. 56 plus. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. So but anyway, regardless, um, I think. I think he actually would have gotten pitched to more in some cases just because there would be so many teams that didn't have a ton to play for after a certain point. I could be wrong. We'll obviously never know. But that's kind of my hunch is that his might actually go the other way. The the other record that Torkelson definitely would have broken is the Arizona State um, career home runs record, which has been held by Bob Horner for 42 years. Torkelson was uh, three home runs shy of breaking that thing. So uh, you know, honestly, he might have done it over the weekend. Like, it, you know, he, you never know. Obviously, he wasn't homering at, um, you know, quite that game home run per game rate, though he was homering at an insane um, home run per at bat rate. His uh, whether he would have hit three this weekend or not, you know, we don't know. Uh, it is unfortunate that he already was getting pitched around as much as he was, because that means, you know, that he did not get a shot at that record. I feel like his freshman year, again, I don't have the exact in front of me, but you know, he, I, I feel like he'd already hit, he needed nine home runs this year to, to break this record. And his freshman year, I feel like he had nine home runs by this time. Like maybe that's just in retrospect, but like it, it felt like he was homering it, you know, just every game he played as a freshman at the start of the season before people wised up and stopped pitching, uh, you know, to, to him. But you know, I, I just wish we could have seen this play out because there are a lot of years where we come into the year and I, we know that the race is going to come down to probably two guys. Um, and, and, you know, there are some years that it's totally wide open. And this was one of those years. There wasn't a Brendan McKay in the field. You know, if you go back to 2017, that was Brendan McKay's award to lose. And Brent Rooker made a really, really great run at it. Like, I was the last person on staff to acknowledge that, that Brendan McKay had beaten Brent Rooker. And I did it very, very late. I, I was very impressed by what Brent Rooker did, but it was always Brendan McKay's award to lose. And, and, you know, he wound up winning it. And, you know, this year we we didn't have anyone like that in the field. Uh, You know, same thing, same deal with Adley Rutschman. It was his award to lose. And frankly, no one came close to it. It was Adley's award the whole season long. He he had, was was leading in in uh, in February and he won it very handily. Uh, there was no one like that in the field this year, and, and so it, it's just unfortunate that that we didn't get uh, you know that kind of of fun player of the year race uh, you know th- this season because again I I feel like it could have been a great one. Just to put a quick bow on this, I looked it up, and uh, your, your hunch was correct. Uh, he had, uh, he being Spencer Torkelson, had eight home runs through March 6th of his freshman year. And by that point, had walked <laughs> some, but not, not, an, you know, not an extraordinary amount. So, okay, so that would have tied the record. You know, when I'm saying he needed nine, that was, that was to break it. So if he had eight on March 6th this year, he would have tied the record. So uh, unfortunate for, for, uh, for Torque. All right, so we were scheduled to, on Wednesday of this week, release our first update to the projected field of 64 uh, in-season update. Obviously, we did not do that. 
but one of the the big talking points coming into the year was could the ACC or SEC get 11 teams into the NCAA tournament? Um, from where we were at this point in the season, it, you know, it's still very early. Um, the you know the 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 RPI has not fully normalized yet. Uh, we didn't have any conference games for the most part. The, the ACC had played three games. A couple other conferences had played. But for the most part, we had no conference data, and we all know how important that can be. Um, so it's very hard to say to definitively how things would have would have tracked. But would the ACC or SEC have broken the record and gotten 11 teams in is, is the question that I posed. And in my analysis... If we had done the field, I didn't go through the process of doing the field, but if we had done the field on when things were shut down, or at least on Wednesday as scheduled, I think the SEC was tracking for 11 teams to appear in that field, assuming no one fell on their faces on opening weekend of SEC play. That means if Alabama didn't get swept by Missouri, if... um, you know, it would have behooved the Tide to win that series. But even if they'd lost, I think they probably still would have appeared in our field. And Auburn needed to show something against A&M. They definitely couldn't really afford a, a bad weekend at home against the Aggies. But if they had, if those two teams had avoided that, I think the SEC was tracking for 11. I think the ACC was tracking for nine, uh, which is down a team from where we had them at, at the start of the year. Uh, but they certainly were not tracking for 11. And I think it would have been hard for the ACC to get back on track because as it stands, they rank third in conference RPI. And while RPI has not yet fully normalized for individual schools, for conferences, it sets up faster because it's an amalgamation of everyone. You know, so there are 12 teams amassing data. That that firms up faster than, than one team amassing data. So the ACC was behind the SEC and the Big 12. And it, it just seemed like it was going to be difficult for them to get on the other side of that. Uh, and they, they had too many teams that were sitting too close to the bubble already, um, I, I would say. You know, obviously, who knows where the weeks would have gone. But I would say the SEC might have done it. They still had complications, especially with Missouri being ineligible. Uh, but the, the SEC, as it stood, looked like that they would have been projected for 11 teams. Obviously, that's different in March than it is in May, but that 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 was where I was at with it, Joe. Um, where, where were you, were you thinking on on the the SECs, especially their chance at, at getting the eleventh team in? Uh, the ten teams that got in last year were all still tracking very well, all off to solid starts. Auburn was off to the shakiest start, uh, but they were still had a lot of things going for them. And then Alabama seems to have taken the step forward. Yeah, so I agree with all of that. Like the ACC, I think we can quickly say they were they were unlikely to get there when you combine that. You know, e- you can even look at the th- these results like extremely small sample sizes, but talk about how they would have impacted the larger race, which is no disrespect to what they have going on there because certainly things were tracking upward. But I think we we both would say that it would have been hard for us to imagine Notre Dame keeping it rolling and getting to a regional. And but by sweeping, I mean they would have care- been in if on, on Wednesday we would have had them in. Right. It, but it's for, for me, like just projecting forward, it would have been hard for me to imagine that for May. Uh, I don't know. I, I like if you look at them versus North Carolina, I have a lot easier time putting Notre Dame in right now and, and projecting forward than North Carolina. Yeah, fair enough. 
fair enough. I, you know, and it's, it's hard to, I mean, we're all flying blind here. Um, sure. but, but so, but I think that the disagreement we, you and I have here, I think is illustrative of, of kind of what the ACC has going on though, where it's, you've kind of got like crabs in a bucket where, you know, crabs start to kind of crawl out of the bucket and other crabs yes. are like pulling them back down. I think that's kind of what you got here where you're going to, they were going to end up not unlike last year where you had a couple of teams like uh, Wake Forest was one of them that kind of tried to backdoor their way into the at-large discussion. And you had Virginia Tech and Notre Dame do this kind of thing last year where they got off to faster starts and you were like, well, maybe these are the teams and it didn't play out that way. So I think that was going to be the case again. Um, you asked me more pointedly about the SEC, though, and I just find it maybe, you know, maybe a team like Kentucky would have been the team this year that that everyone, you know, they just win a handful of SEC games and really struggle. And that's where everybody kind of gets their wins. But when you have a team like Missouri that you know is not going to take 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 part in the postseason, you almost really need that team from the league standpoint to maximize your teams. You almost really need that team to bottom out. And, and I think what we saw with what they did in, in Houston was that was not going to happen with Missouri. Um, I don't think they were going to rip, you know, be 20 and 10 in the SEC, but certainly that was not a team that was going to bottom out on you. So then when you look at the totality of it, I just I think we've seen in the past years that math is really hard where somebody's got to lose games. And then you look at last year where you had kind of Missouri and Florida were circling it at the end of the year. And it really kind of came down to one of these two teams is going to get in. One of them is, is not. And um, that, you know, in the SEC tournament, like that, that, that those one game, those little one game, little play-ins or playoff situations kind of end up making a difference. And I, I just think when these, when you're talking about getting 11 of your 14 teams in, I just think that math is so hard. And, and so that doesn't to say it couldn't happen uh, this year, certainly with the high end of what the SEC was offering, particularly in the SEC East where two of the top three teams in the country uh, came from the SEC East. SEC East. No, by the way, Vanderbilt is one of, also involved in the SEC East. I think this might've been the year where they challenged to do that, but I just have a hard time and not being someone who uh, is great at this kind of, um, you know, mathematical analysis. Like it, it just seems so hard for things have to break so perfectly, I think, for you to get 11 in. And I think we see it year after year where you end up with a couple of bubble teams in the conference that end up getting kind of played off of each other and then kind of knocking one out and one in. And with that being the case, I just think it's it, it would always be hard to pull off. Could have been this year, but I wouldn't I probably wouldn't have bet on it if you're making me go one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a very reasonable way to look at it. That That is a thing that, you know, it seems like for the last three years, we've been talking about can the SEC break the record. And, you know, there always seems to be something that, that comes up that, that stops them from happening. And it's very easy to right now look at all of these teams and say, well, you know, I mean, all 10 teams that got in last year, they got off to a pretty good start. Uh, you know, but what if the Aub the cracks that Auburn showed against UCF were more serious than um, you know some some realized? You know, what what if that was the start of something? And and, and what if their terrible non-conference schedule, which you know I talked about, uh, you know how they were Horizon League champions? What if that was just going to tank their RPI in a way that that meant that they were going to be sitting around 40 ever? You know. That, that that was going to be something close to their peak unless they went on a crazy SEC run, um, you know, th then maybe they fall out of this or, uh, you know, who, who knows what, what injuries would have cropped up and, you know, and, and that would have hurt some, some team along, along the line. And, um, you know, 
a, a team like AM, which is so, you know, so pitching, you know, heavy, what, what if they went on an extended slump against SEC arms? Like, what does that do? So, you know, it, it certainly could have could have broken any any number of ways. But to, to steal a bit, Joe, um, I don't know how many people know this, but they have to put 64 teams in the field. And I don't know if the selection committee knew that or not, but like the if the pack was going to look as bad as the pack was starting to look, you know, we had to get teams from somewhere. And, you know, it pains me to say this, but the Big Ten wasn't off to a great start either. So if they weren't going to get their typical five, uh, either team, either conference there, if they weren't going to you know get their typical five, six bids, uh, you know, someone was going to benefit. And maybe that just would have been the Big West or the West Coast Conference, two conferences that were certainly tracking up. Uh, but also it does make it easier at that point, potentially, to get an 11th SEC team into the field. Obviously, we'll never know. But, you know, I, it, it did th- this year had had some significant hurdles because Mizzou already ineligible. So now you're talking about trying to get 11 of 13. And frankly, Kentucky did not look very good. Um, so, you know, who knows? It, it would have been a very difficult thing to pull off. But you know, maybe because the, the pack and the Big Ten look to be uh, slightly down from where they had been recently, maybe there was more room to maneuver for an SEC, particularly if the ACC wasn't going to be trying to jam 10 of teams of its own into the field. Yeah, so what you're saying is maybe if we if this season had played out um, fully, uh, maybe this, this would be the type of year where M- Mizzou picked the wrong year to, to be ineligible versus go 13 and 18 in the SEC. Cause maybe that, maybe that would have done it. Uh, who knows? And I say that not to be flippant. I, you know, they obviously did not pick this, this, uh, ineligibility or anything like that, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that, that may have, may have tracked in that direction where, um, you know, there are some years where, you know, this is one of the ways in which the, uh, selection committee, there's kind of an ebb and flow where some years conference record is a big deal. Some years it's not. And, and I think, you know, it's a big deal if they decide it's a big deal and it's not if, if they don't. Um, And sometimes it can be a tiebreaker. And I think this is maybe would have been a year where it would have been something they would have had to excuse and put, put those teams in. So. Well, while we're on the subject of uh, the tournament, Let's uh, let's get to a subject closer to, to Joe's heart, and that is could Long Beach or and or Pepperdine have hosted a regional? Now, again, RPI is what it is at this point, but Long Beach, their RPI wasn't that great, despite the fact that they ranked very high in every human poll and that they had already won series against Mississippi State, Cal, Wake Forest, and Xavier, four strong quality teams heading into what would have been a huge series on the weekend at Tulane. Huge might be overstating it, but it would have been a very important series, uh, you know, last weekend at Tulane for the Dirtbags. Pepperdine, RPI liked a little more because they played on the road more. Uh, They had only lost one weekend game. That was to Michigan. The the, the the names on their schedule look very good. Oregon, Minnesota, Michigan, Florida International, San Diego. Uh, but frankly, several of those teams are off to sluggish starts. Um, you know, so they really would have kind of needed teams like Oregon and Minnesota to rebound to really help their RPI out at the level that you would expect those schools to normally. Uh, but the waves were, uh, were were up there in the 30s. Um, I think hosting from the West Coast Conference is just flat out hard. 
and I find it difficult to believe that Pepperdine was about to do that. Uh, as good as they looked, they really would have had to dominate the WCC, and the WCC looked to be a little deeper than what we are accustomed to. Um, so I think they had it difficult. But Beach, I, I think the RPI probably would have been an issue, but that if they had gone out and won the Big West with 20, 22 wins, uh, you know that becomes hard to deny as a host if you have some of these other quality series wins. You know, UCSB managed to stay in the host discussion last year for, for a long, long time. Uh, and, and this beach team, you know, the Big West, again, it, it looked a little better than it did a year ago, so it would have been hard to, to truly dominate it, but maybe that also would have helped them. That would have helped them from an RPI standpoint, and, and it would have made winning the Big West maybe a little more meaningful if the Dirtbags could have pulled that off. But, Joe, wh- where do you stand on, on those schools' chances to host in, in if, if the season had continued? Yeah, certainly like Long Beach's chance, chances more than Pepperdine for the, for the reasons you state. I, I just think um, the WCC looks good, and that, that kind of cuts two ways. I think for one, I think their RPI was was going to hang in there. I certainly like their their chances as long as they kind of stayed the course to be a, to be an at-large team if it came to that. Um, hosting, though, is a whole other deal. And, and one thing you have to consider with Pepperdine, too, is, you know, if they were a borderline host, and the, the committee has, has kind of, um, has proven that geographic diversity is not necessarily a concern. We had that one year where there won't, there weren't any any hosts at all on the West Coast. So like, I, I, so that's not the direction I'm going here. What I'm saying is, if there's kind of a tiebreaker, you know, Pepperdine has some challenges for hosting. Um, they have hosted at Eddie V Field before, um, but they don't have lights. They would have to either play their games early enough to overcome that, or do t- a temporary lighting situation. And their seating capacity would probably, you'd have to fudge the numbers a little bit. I don't suspect it's up to the total that the NCAA would like to see, unless you're counting, they've got some, you know, berm areas where you could stand or sit. Um, so if you're talking a borderline host and their bid is going to require some of this kind of stuff to work around, like that certainly it wasn't working in their favor. And so it's those kind of small things I think that can matter a little bit. Um, but I think more than anything else, it's just, you're right. I mean, unless they were really going to, you know, I think the WCC plays 20, I guess they play a full 30 in the WCC. Is that right? I'm going to go back and look here. But they they would have really had to to rip through the WCC. And to your point, uh, even the bottom of the WCC, um, you know, is much improved when you look, at a, you look at a team like Santa Clara. So the chances, they play 27 in the WCC. So they would probably would have had to go, you know, at least 20 and seven, 21 and six, and that might not have even done it. And it seems unlikely they would have been able to do that just given the quality of that league from top to bottom this year. So uh, WCC, I've written about it in a couple different places, but the WCC was tracking to at least compete to be a multi-bid league. And, and so again, that, that kind of cuts two ways there, but Long Beach, I like their case a little more. Uh, you know, I think the Santa Barbara example uses a good one just in terms of that was a team that was really running away with the Big West. They hung in there in the in the um, uh, the hosting discussion for a long time, and I don't even think Long and they didn't have anything on their on their non conference that was nearly as impressive as as what Long Beach did um, in winning that series with Mississippi State. Now it kind of remains to be seen what Mississippi State 
was with some of their injury issues they had, like what direction that team was going. They certainly weren't tracking in a positive direction as the season ended. Um, but I don't know. I think, just beat Texas Tech twice. We'll see there. You, uh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, good point. I kind of forgot. That was that midweek, those two midweek games. Just uh, yeah, I mean, that totally, we, we had a lot going on. <laughs> we were not worried. I don't think I watched, and I'm a guy who, who streams just a ton of college baseball, and I don't think I streamed much of anything Tuesday or Wednesday because the focus was just so far from that at that point, especially on Wednesday. You know, um, Wednesday had an eerie feel. I know there's, you know, uh, lots of places have talked about how eerie Wednesday was from like a basketball standpoint. But even, it, you know, as I was thinking about these midweek games going on, um, just knowing that, yeah, this you guys are not going to be <laughs> this is the last game you're going to be playing for a while. It, it certainly seemed that way. So anyway, back, back on track, though. I, I So I think they have things on the resume that, that Santa Barbara did not last year. So I don't even think Long Beach would have had to you know, go through the big West in the same way that Santa Barbara did. And, and playing at home is kind of what was holding back their RPI, but also, you know, even if Mississippi state was just a, a good, but not great SEC team, their RPI was going to improve from 50 where it was now. And I'm fairly confident, even if Wake Forest wasn't the team we thought they were at the start of the year, their RPI was not going to be 172. And even Cal, Cal was, was off to a rough start at five and 11, but it's unlikely the pack does have teams that have 200 plus RPIs, but not many. And I, I'm fairly confident Cal would not have been that team. this yeah, year. So. I, that that's what happens when Wazoo bottoms out, you know, that's not what happens right. to Cal. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm making. Yeah. So, so I think those numbers would have improved long Beach's RPI in general would have improved. I would have really liked to have seen what this team could do over the course of the entire season. And, you know, I wrote about this a little bit for something that will be coming out, um, in the coming days. But, you know, if you're a Long Beach fan, you're disappointed. You didn't get to see what this team could do and this team could get into a regional. Because I think at this point, I don't want to say it's a lock because anything could happen, but like this Long Beach team looked like a postseason team. And it would have been hard for them to stumble hard enough within reason to undo what they'd already done in a lot of ways. But uh, you should be very excited about what's coming for this program because the idea that Eric Valenzuela got a team that won 14 games last year to win 10 in just 15 tries uh, this season uh, is, is obviously a very positive sign. And it's a young team. There are some upperclassmen who might have to make some decisions about what they want to do moving forward. But uh, for the most part, this is a pretty young team, the core of which should be returning. So that's all really, really good news for the Long Beach faithful. Yeah. I generally think there is a regional coming to Blair field this year. Like, well, I don't know. I, I can I waffle on that. And it's just like, I just waffled. Um, like you, you can get very excited about it. And then you can also wonder like, was Long Beach actually the best team in the big West or like, was it UCSB? And we'll never know the answer to that. But, uh, you know, I do think whichever one of those teams won the big West, I think probably was hosting a regional. I think I'll commit to saying the big West would have hosted a regional this year. And in a projection, if we had released a projection on Wednesday, it would have been Long Beach. Uh, but I would not be surprised if over the course of a month to six weeks that hadn't changed to UCSB. Um, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't rule that out. I, I'm, I think it was more likely that it would be the dirtbags. But if it was the Gauchos, I wouldn't have been stunned by that either. I, I do really think the Gauchos were very good. Uh, that if, if the season had continued, I would have loved to see those teams go at it. Uh, unfortunately, obviously, that, that that will not be the case now. 
Uh, all right, so we got one more of these, and uh, it kind of diving back into the player of the year race, but who would have won the home run race? Nick Gonzalez had hit 12 home runs. That led the country. Uh, the the second place was was nine. He was he was three. He had a three home run lead. Uh, you had with with nine home runs. You had Justin Durden from Southeast Missouri State. You had five other players who were tied at eight. Maybe most notable of those was um, Hunter Goodman at Memphis. Um, other players who we had expected to contend for the home run title. Uh, Aaron Sabato had seven. Heston Kerstad had six. Torque had six. So they weren't that far behind the chase pack, though they are at that point a little bit behind Gonzalez. I mentioned before, Nick Gonzalez got off to a hot start in 2019, and the numbers really dropped off once he got into whack play. Uh, there, there are 12 home runs last year in 28 non-conference games, just four in 27 whack games. I feel like he would have hit more than four this year. But I don't know. Like, again, I really think they were going to stop pitching to him. And so I think my my gut is that Gonzalez got caught for the home run lead and it would have been somebody like Durden or, you know, maybe somebody a little more off the board, because I also don't know how much you could really expect Kerstad or Torkelson to get pitched to, Um, you know, and, and Sabato had started the year so sluggishly and then had gone on a home run binge. I don't know what to expect there. Maybe Sabato could have done it. He's playing in a tougher home park than some of these other guys, uh, which does hurt him as well. But my, my guess is that as much fun as this race would have been if all of these top prospect famous players had been going at it, uh, I do think it would have probably just been someone that we aren't as familiar with, someone a little off the, off the radar, like Durden, who's a senior at SEMO. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, that's kind of all, often the way it, it ends up. It ends up playing out. Justin Durden, by the way, nice player. I uh, this would be very on brand for me to, uh, to to do a dive on a player in the OVC, but missed just about all last year with injury, as about half of Simo's roster did last year. Uh, they were off to a decent startup. That's another team that uh, you know was was off to a nice start that won't get to see that play out. But uh, yeah, really nice player. Uh, I, I remember talking to Andy Sawyer's about him a couple of years ago and, and asking him kind of you know, what, you know, what was your level of expectation that Justin Durden could be this type of player? Cause he, he more or less, you know, he didn't get off to quite this start two years ago, but he was a similar type of player two years ago. And his answer was something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing just like, well, it, it wasn't this, that was not what I, he, you know, he knew he had a nice player, but didn't know he maybe didn't know that he had this type of player. So he certainly is someone to, that, that I think would have been in that mix. There's also like, you can never go wrong with OVC players just because of how offensive that league was. So like Tennessee Tech's Jason Hinchman, who hit 24 last year, uh, had six, uh, but he, you know, really hadn't gotten into the teeth of OVC play yet. Uh, when I when I suspect there, he would have hit a lot of home runs. Um, among the players, he's kind of at the top of this list. I think Hunter Goodman. Um, now he might have had the same issue that Torkelson had on a lesser scale because he was clearly the focal point of the Memphis offense. So maybe that he runs in that a little bit. Um, but uh, the other thing about that is how good is Memphis's team, and if Memphis is not competing necessarily game in and game out he gets pitched to just because maybe games aren't as much in question so there's obviously a lot of variables there but but i think you're right i think gonzalez probably slows down a little bit um as fun as it would be if nick gonzalez did something crazy and you know hit 35 home runs or what have you um that would have been fun but but i think you're right i think if he ends up getting caught by someone you know probably out of the out of the um you know out of the limelight if you will 
um, you know, probably by a player in the OVC because that's how these things go in, in, in a league like uh, in a league like that. Yeah, so that that uh, that all sound that that tracks. The OVC has uh, you know a, a reputation as as being a hitters league, and Hunter Goodman just incredible power himself. So it would have been very interesting to see where it went. But yeah, I, I think that the home run race that we all would have loved to have with with the famous players doing their thing on a on a big stage, I don't think we were going to end up with that as as much of a killjoy as as that may make me. Um, I, I don't think that's where we were headed. So those are the questions we wanted to address here on the podcast. There are a few more that I dive into, and I would encourage you to check it all out over at baseballamerica.com. Again, that will that is slated to run on on Friday, so you can if you're listening to this, then you can uh, you can head over to baseballamerica.com and check that out. Uh, I believe Joe that takes us to the end of the baseball portion of the show. If uh, if you don't like Joe and I talking about food. Um, oh wait, we have one more thing before I dismiss the the baseball uh, only crowd. Um, on the podcast going forward, Joe had a cool idea. I will let Joe introduce it uh, here. So uh, the idea is to kind of take what works about a book club. Um, just the idea that as a community, you read a book and you, you get together and you talk about it, what you like, what you didn't like, and questions you have, things like that. Um, as much as I would like to do that as someone who, who reads quite a bit, uh, there just aren't that many college baseball books, although, you know, maybe that's something we dive into later. So the idea is a uh, college baseball watch club instead of a book club. So you, you may know that I put a post out earlier this week that was 10 games you can watch on YouTube right now. And uh, although I have gotten comments to this uh, effect on Twitter and in other places, um, this is not the 10 best games ever. <laughs> You know, first of all, we're limited by YouTube, and then also we're going to continue putting these lists out. So um, rest assured, these are th- this is not the ranking of the ten greatest games ever played. Uh, trust me on that. Um, but I put this post out earlier in the week, and so the idea we have is every week let's pick one of these games that that go in these posts, and let's all watch it as a group. So Teddy and I will watch, um, and, and we'll assign it to you, the listeners. Um, if you are a, an active Reddit user, I have begun posting over on College Baseball Reddit. Um, I would recommend you join that community. It's a pretty vibrant community. I know in college baseball that we don't have these necessarily have these huge communities other sports have, but there's a, there's a good one there. Um, so I've been posting over there. So your assignments uh, will go up there as well. Um, and then we're going to come back on the podcast. And the goal is to have someone involved in that game that we watch on the podcast every week. Um, so whether that's someone who played in it, someone who coached in it, um, it could be, you know, any number of people from that given game and we're just going to dissect it. We'll talk to the guest about it. We'll ask questions about it. Um, Teddy and I will discuss, um, you know, discuss individual points of the game and, and we'd like to, I think, I don't want to speak out of turn here, Teddy, but I think part of what we're hoping for too, is if you guys are watching along, send us thoughts you have, questions you have, things you might like us to ask, uh, various guests, um, either whether it's through Twitter at, at Ted Cahill or at Joe Healy BA, um, our email addresses are findable. If you want to do it that way, uh, you can go to the Reddit board. Um, you can post on there. We'll be pulling things from all different directions, but we're all kind of stuck in the same, uh, purgatory without college baseball going on. Um, watching old games can be a way to kind of help with that. It's not quite the same, but it can help. So we just kind of wanted to bring the college baseball community together to kind of, um, 
coalesce around this one idea and to be able to kind of do this all together and, and maybe create something at least in the neighborhood of what following college baseball live would bring to the table. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I, I think it's cool. Uh, I'm excited to, you know, dive into some of this historical content. Uh, the, po- the, the games that Joe included in his post initially all trend toward um, like big decisive college world series games. Uh, so that's exciting as well because, you know, obviously the, the, there's a lot of drama. There's a lot at stake in all of those games. Uh, maybe if we keep doing this long enough, we'll we'll find some Tuesday game <laughs> somewhere. But you know, for for now, we've we've got a lot we've got a lot at stake in in every one of these games. So I, it, it, they're exciting games. They're good games. They're they're fun to look back on. And uh, you know, honestly, I haven't watched um, you know some of these games that that are more uh, you know going back into into the, deeper into the archives. Uh, that that are from before my time in in college baseball. So, uh, you know, that's exciting as well. You can see what the what the game looked like, uh, you know, 15, 20, um, up to 30 years ago. I think one of Joe's po- one of one of those games is I, I think the oldest one is 94. Um, yeah. You know, so 94. that's uh, I mean that's before uh, you know our current players you know were alive. So you know that's kind of cool uh, on its own. Just how see how much the game has changed, see, see the ways it has changed, and uh, then you know hopefully we'll be able to um, to break it down with, with some of the people that were involved. So I'm excited about it. And, and Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the game that we've selected that we're going to uh, get into next week? Yeah. So we're going to be looking at 1995. Cal State Fullerton, uh, USC, uh, College World Series. Um, cool game because of the presentation of it, to Teddy's point. It's a mid-90s college baseball game. Um, it's two uh, powerhouse programs. Uh, you know, USC and Cal State Fullerton are, are two teams that are... Uh, Man, remember very, when USC was good? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was, uh, this was kind of the USC's second peak. They had the, the peak, obviously, in the 70s. This was kind of their second peak in the uh, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. So um, so it, it's it's great from, from that standpoint. It also is a nice snapshot of when, you know, baseball was a big deal in the Southeast. I'm not suggesting it was all West Coast, but it certainly was more heavily West Coast than it is now. So it is kind of an interesting snapshot of, of that moment in time. It's two great coaches, Fullerton's Augie Garrido, USC's Mike Gillespie, um, this was actually Mike Gillespie's first trip to Omaha with USC. Um, so there's a little bit of, of history in that. You've got an all-time great college player in Mark Kotze, who went on to be a big leaguer, but he, he's widely considered to be perhaps the best two-way player of all time in college baseball. That's a debate that uh, we'll probably have on this podcast during the, during the postseason, or during, excuse me, during the offseason. Um, it's also just star-studded rosters. I mean, you've got, in addition to Kotze for Fullerton, you've got Jeremy Giambi, he's a guy you probably know. USC had Jeff Jenkins, Jock Jones, um, Gabe Alvarez, who is currently on the USC staff, uh, Ted Silva, who is currently uh, on the USC staff, was pitching for Fullerton. Uh, there's just a lot in this game, and this is a great one to start with. I was uh, Teddy actually kind of suggested this is the first one, and and I think it's there's really no better place to start when you think about all that there is in this game to get get you interested in it because it's not just these were two great teams. All that is also true. Uh, there's a lot to watch for uh, beyond that. So a fun one to start with. I'm really looking forward to it as a game I have, I'm aware of, um, but I have never watched it all the way through. I was actually unaware this game was even on YouTube until I started doing the research for this post. So it was kind of a nice little surprise. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it for sure. 
All right. So sometime in the next week, uh, make sure to check that out. And then, uh, like Joe said, let us know if you have thoughts, if you have things you want us to uh, to dive into. I'll hopefully um, be able to announce who our guest is sometime in the next few days. So check that out uh, on Twitter. Uh, and Joe will probably throw that in some Reddit post. I imagine at some point we will put a link to the game in this show's post uh, at BaseballAmerica.com um, and hopefully also into the podcast show notes. But definitely if you go to BaseballAmerica.com and either click on the uh, you know Joe's original story, it's linked in there, or the, the, the podcast post itself will have a link there as well um, so that you can find that. And then, yeah, let us know at Ted Cahill or at Joe Healy BA uh, your thoughts on it. Uh, and what you want us to to dive into um, next week on the podcast. All right, that is the college baseball uh, portion of the podcast uh, of the week. Um, Joe, we've been at this a while. I don't know how long you want to dive into this, but I posted over the weekend, there was a bracket. uh, It's called the Ultimate Fast Food and Fast Casual Restaurant Bracket. And I was bored uh, on the couch with my girlfriend and so we filled it out, and I posted it on Twitter, and Joe uh, responded demanding that we talk about it on the podcast. I don't know if you want to get into it now, if we want to do this in the future, uh, but what I, I know, Joe, you, you had some thoughts uh, about the way that I went about filling the bracket in. Yeah, so let's. Uh, that's a good point. We've been at this a while, so let's Punt that it's a good introduction to it. Let's punt that conversation. Maybe that'll give the listeners a, ch- a chance to kind of digest <laughs> that too. If you've not seen the way, um, you know, Teddy filled it out, go to his Twitter account, scroll back, uh, not too far. Uh, the scroll easiest way is just bit. to go to the media, uh, the, the little media yep. tab there, yep. and uh, it's the, currently the second thing on if you click media. Yeah, so let, let's punt that conversation to the next episode, perhaps. And we've got we've got time to talk about this. Let's let it breathe a little bit. We've we've given the people a lot of content here already, and dove into a lot of stuff. So we'll 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 give people a chance to maybe digest that if they have digest is a funny word fast food. Um, <laughs> we'll give people a chance to really take that in if they haven't already. Uh, we'll come back. I just. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are a few, you know, I think overall, like what we need to keep in mind here, just to keep it civil, is that uh, everyone's got different opinions. Um, everyone has different tastes. And so I think that is, um, I think that shows in the way Teddy and his girlfriend filled it out. I think it would show in the way that, that I would fill it out. And maybe that's my homework. Maybe that's my homework before we meet the next time is maybe I fill this thing out. Um, and we kind of do also a little say that the seating is terrible. Like that was yeah, my initial reaction when I saw I agree. When I saw it, it, the seating is terrible. And there's a note. I don't know where this bracket came from. I just saw it from uh, John Whittle on Twitter. It says on here, restaurants and seating determined by audience vote. So I don't know whose audience this is, but whoever's it is, it's awful. Like, it is just terrible. Uh, and so that that's an important qualifier because, you know, if you... If you look at brackets, like uh, we're most familiar with NCAA tournament brackets, which are very meticulously seated, and like people spend a lot of time trying to get that right, and you know people still argue about it, but generally the selection committees do an okay job of that, at least in basketball, uh, you know, with its full one through 64 seating or 68 seating. We, we can argue about how baseball doesn't seed one through 64 and how maybe it should and whatever. We, we have time to get into that sort of thing, but. If you look at, you know, whatever, you know, movie or food or, or 
TV show, whatever fun bracket people put together. The thing about it is that however they seed it basically determines how it goes in large part. And, you know, so if you screw the seeding up as badly as the seeding is screwed up on this thing, weird things will happen. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it appears, you know, a lot of the seeding was done by Ubiquity. I mean, McDonald's is a one seed and like, I don't know, maybe that's like a legacy one seed. I, like, honestly, I actually I'm don't okay have with a huge... That. Yeah, yeah, the I agree. The chains are where, like, if... Okay, so Pizza Hut is seated as a four, Domino's is a five, and Papa John's is a seven. And look, I mean, my opinion on where those three rank is is what it is, but like, how are there three seed line differences between Pizza Hut and Papa John's? Are they not all relatively the same? Like, I, that that's one of the ones that, that really gets me. And they're, they're all spread out across the bracket. Like, it's difficult. Well, and how is, I mean, Subway as a three seed is, my goodness. I mean, that's just, talk about the church's chicken coming in hot as a 14 seed, got the best draw of all time. I mean, Subway is the, is is like the, uh, Subway is fine. And that's all you can say. There are so many better sub places just in this bracket altogether. And then you've got McDonald's as a one, but on the opposite side, you've got five guys as a one. And don't get me wrong. Like I like a five guys burger, but as a one seed, woof, you know, so I, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that, that's uh, that's tough. But yeah, we'll get into it more on the next episode. I think we, we need to give folks a chance to maybe take a look at that and, and, and give their thoughts. And I'll, I'll fill it out before the next time we do this again. All right. We will also look forward to hearing Joe's uh, In-N-Out review uh, next My week. Much anticipated punt- In-N-Out review. We're, we're going to put on that again. I, I think when I put it on initially, we went off pod and I joked to Joe that it could be our version of Jimmy Kimmel's like, and we'll get to Matt Damon next. Uh, sorry, we ran out of time, Matt. We'll get, get you next show. Uh, Joe's in and out review could be could be that. Well, uh, you know, here we are like three podcasts later and we're still waiting for it. Yeah, so but it will that into existence. it will thematically fit with this. So uh, maybe we can get to that. Uh, next week we will be back next week uh with another edition of the baseball america college podcast obviously we've talked a lot about what we will talk about then uh and you have your assignments uh as listeners before then yes i i, I guess i'm giving out homework now um i don't precisely know the our recording schedule yet we're, we're still work, working through this obviously maybe it'll be later in the week like it was this week uh maybe it'll be a little earlier uh some of this will depend on on when we can record with our guest. Uh, so TBD, and because it is TBD, please remember to, scri- to subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, you can get the Baseball America podcast. And if you're subscribed, you don't have to wonder when the next episode is coming. It's just gonna come straight into your phone and you'll have it there sitting ready, waiting for you to, to listen to it. So please go ahead and do that. It, it really does help us out as well. Um, and if you can leave a review or a rating on whatever your whatever podcast app you're listening on, we really appreciate those as well. Uh, I understand the sound quality is probably degraded a little bit here. Um, so we appreciate all four and five star hopefully five star reviews that don't just mention how bad my sound quality is right now we're we're working to address that uh going forward as well as as we work to uh work, um get used to our new realities here uh with with the office being closed so uh we will be back here next week until then remember to check out all the content over at baseballamerica.com uh, we've got a lot of news up this week from all levels of the game, how the 
the you know everyone minor league major league college draft whoever is responding to the shutdown and, and we're going to have continue to have new content over at baseballamerica.com going forward there should be a new draft ranking uh, coming soon next week so that that's a big one that that everyone can uh, can look forward to as well until we talk to you next week i want to thank you guys for listening thanks to joe healy for joining me i've been teddy cahill we'll see you next week <laughs>